Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> We're into 2022. Things are crazy. Yes. It's a wild world we're living in. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, I feel like I'm going into this year better than I have other years. So I'm feeling really good about that. Much more positive. For yes. Sure. <laughs> I'm drinking lots of water. <laughs> it's a good way to start the new year. <laughs> really is. And then um, producer got us new mic stands. Yes, he did. They're so nice. What a great Christmas gift. Every once in a while, he contributes to this show. Yes, he actually <laughs> produces in some way or fashion. <laughs> I think like every now and again, he listens to an episode and he's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fiance has yet to contribute anything, but. Yeah, that's right. okay. That's okay. He doesn't that's have a okay. label of part of the show. No, so he, he doesn't. doesn't have to. He's yeah. like not even on the website. So no. it doesn't matter. <laughs> Our infamous website. <laughs> nothing on it. I don't know. Um, um, okay, so are you ready to do this? I, like, I, I can't wait to dive into it every week now because I don't know who you're I doing. Know, I know, it's just, so fun. I just I, want to find out. It's really great. Um, so I guess we need to, to get into are, this. Right? Yeah, because this is history. <laughs> On the rocks. Katie. And Alex. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> and we are not historians. No. Um, at best, we Google. Mm -hmm. We do some research, mm -hmm. watch some YouTube, and um, then we just say whatever we read, whether it's right or wrong. Exactly. So, and if you know the right answer, let us know. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> great. We love to correct ourselves and let everybody else know that we are not historians. No, <laughs> but professional drinkers. Yes. Um, okay. But you are listening to this. Who knows where? Maybe you are sweeping up the confetti in Times Square. Maybe that is your job. Uh, which, by the way, did you know that you can send wishes to put in the confetti? I did not know that. Yeah. You can contribute a wish. I, like, And it just gets put on, on a little slip of paper. And it gets put in the confetti that rains down on Times Square. Okay, well, next year. <laughs> I will do that next year. I know, it's a little too late now. I think the cutoff was, like, Tuesday. Yeah, I was going to say, they're definitely, like, in yeah. Times Square setting up the um, stuff right now. But, yeah, I just found speak. that out. So, for future reference, you can do that, apparently. Right. So, anyways, but you're sweeping up the confetti. It's a very important job. Um, I'm sure it's annoying, but you can't the stop. Turtles. Yeah, please, <laughs> dear God. But you can't stop and look up what these women look like on your phone. Mm -hmm. So, we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical. Physical. All right, Allie, what does your person look like? And I'm wondering if I can guess. I think you can. I think you can. Okay. My woman this week is 305 feet tall and weighs 31 tons. She wears a long flowing Grecian robe and has a seven point diadem. She has a square nose and shoulder length hair that's pulled back out of her face. When she was young, she was a beautiful copper color, but as she's aged, she's turned a lovely shade of green. It's the Statue of Liberty! Yeah. <laughs> Allie, you are going to throw up when you hear the connection between our two people. No. Yeah, you're going to vomit all over, the place, <laughs> all over our brand new mic stands. Oh. Uh, isn't that fun? Oh, I'm so excited! Oh, that's so perfect. Okay. That's perfect. Great. Okay. So my woman, <laughs> she is a dark-skinned African woman who we don't have any pictures of, but we have a few drawings and a bronze statue. 
She is typically portrayed with short hair, a choker, or maybe a pearl necklace, sitting sideways at a desk with a quill in her hand and her other hand reaching up to her chin in thought. And of course, there's a bonnet on her head because she lived in colonial America. Her name is Phyllis Wheatley. I feel like we've posted about her on our yes, Instagram. Yes, we have. Okay. We've never covered her. No, we haven't, but I've seen like this picture that you're referencing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited to get into this story. Okay. <laughs> wow. So that's a lot of fun. Um, okay. But there's going to be a lot of connections. Okay, okay. Okay. What am I drinking? I need okay. to know what I'm drinking. So this cocktail is called Let the Goddess Guide. It is gin, apple brandy, lemon juice, simple syrup, and nutmeg. And you top it with a Sam Adams Boston lager. And you garnish it with a maraschino cherry. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Mm. Mm. This tastes like fall to me. It is a very fall forward drink. It's bringing back happy memories. Mm -hmm. Of before Christmas. Now we're in like before. the post Christmas New Year's, like when it's cold and there's nothing to look yep. forward to. I hate March. Mm. <laughs> March is definitely the worst month. It's just awful. Yeah. Um, but this is pretty good. It's refreshing. Um, definitely tastes a lot more like the Boston lager than I thought it would. And because I like I only kind of topped it. It's with like it. an apple Boston lager it because is. of that apple brandy. I like Ooh, it a lot. Nice. Um, um, also, this is going to be like in a very, very. Uh, America episode. <laughs> this probably should have been done on like the 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> or President's Day like this Something month. <laughs> like that. Doesn't matter. Not nope, planned. Doesn't matter. Um, okay. So I got a lot of this from the History Chick, Stuff You Missed in History Class, a video from Crash Course History and the History Channel. But before I get into it, do you know anything about Phyllis Wheatley? I, I think she's a writer. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. Um, and... All I know is I can I can picture the things that I've screenshot in the past to put on Instagram and like the little (laughs) blurbs. But I think she is just an early American writer. I'm assuming she's from Massachusetts if we're using a Boston logger Mm -hmm. and then has something to do with like the um, early freedom in the colonies. All right. Well, let's see. Teach me. (laughs) Although the date and place of her birth are not documented, scholars believe that Phyllis Wheatley was born in 1753 in West Africa, most likely in present-day Gambia or Senegal. But of course, there's no way to tell where exactly she was born because in 1760, she was stolen from her home and taken to a port on the coast of Africa to be sold into slavery. So they're just guessing that's where she was born, but she really could have been from anywhere and then transported to the coast. We're really not 100% sure. Okay. Um, she was sold to a slave trader and taken to Boston, Massachusetts on a slave ship, which was owned by Timothy Fitch and captained by Peter Gwynn. So the captain, Peter Gwynn, was on very strict orders. He was like, you know, go to West Africa and I want you to pick up a cargo of young boys to um, sell in the colonies right? because young boys were a lot easier to sell. They sold at higher prices, just a lot more profit could be had from that. Um, But for some reason, Peter Gwynn decided that 
he was going to forgo these orders and he brought back some young boys, but mainly like some women and children on this excursion. That's a really interesting choice because I feel like Very they, interesting. they don't sell for as much money and they no. can't do as much labor. No. And they're harder to sell because that's not the kind of person that most slave owners are looking for hmm. um so very interesting we don't really know why and it, we also don't really know why he picked this particular like six or seven year old girl like hmm. very weird situation so anyways she arrives in boston on july 11th 1761 and when he got into port like the owner of the ship T- timothy fitch was pretty upset he was like you did not get what i asked for um and like i told you to get 110 people you only got 95 and 20 of them died so now i only have 75 people and he has to like pay for this voyage back and forth right so like he's hoping to sell these people to make his money back right exactly and i also didn't know that it was fairly common for like a large portion of the people to die on these ships which makes total sense it was terrible it was horrible conditions um you know i mean they're chained to a boat in squalor conditions for literally like i think it was like four months yeah it's terrible horrible But either way, he has to sell these people. So he posts around town that he has some prime young slaves to sell, uh, the nice folks of Boston. And he wrote on there cheap for cash because he did not have any hope of like a lot of these people selling for a lot of money. A lot of money. Okay. Um, And there on the docks was this little girl emaciated shaking wearing only a bit of you know what was later said to be dirty carpet she is sick with a horrible fever she is missing her front teeth so people take that to assume she's about seven years old because that's about when you know kids are losing those teeth um and the captain has like no hope of her selling like he's like i don't know what we're gonna do with her because nobody will want this little girl can somebody like have empathy (laughs) please so Okay, good. A woman named Susanna Wheatley was about town doing a bit of shopping when she happened upon this incredible sale. (laughs) She said, well, I was thinking about buying a young girl for around the house, you know, someone who can take care of me in my old age and kind of grow up with me. And as soon as she saw this young girl who she said had a humble and modest demeanor, she knew she was the one. And by the way, all of this is disgusting. I know that people know that but like i hate this whole scene it's awful it's hard to talk about it in this way i know it really is <laughs> because it's like making this like you know white woman about to buy this person out seem to like a, a nice guy, guy. And i know like, oh. i know so she purchased this little girl and of course she needed a name <laughs> so Susanna is kind of looking around she squints her eyes and she sees the boat that brought her and it's named the phyllis so yes so they named this girl after this terrible experience she just went through yeah so her name is a combination of the ship that stole her from home and the slave owners that purchased her phyllis wheatley Hmm. we have no idea what her original name was Hmm. i wonder if she even knows if you're like six or seven when you come over she had she was like i have no memories like she was like i can picture a woman pouring water out of a vessel and, and she that's goes, that's it. my only memory of home. Because you're too young. You're yeah. too young at that point to have all that, like, long-term memories. Yeah. No. 
Um, so Susanna Wheatley takes her home to the house she shared with her husband, John Wheatley, who was a prominent Boston businessman who was into real estate, importing, exporting, and apparently he was also a tailor. So he really liked to dabble um, in a lot of different things. But it also meant like he made a lot of money. Um, and so I want to be clear, they had slaves at their house already and paid white servants. Okay. Now, we don't know how they treated their other slaves, but or the other enslaved people. Um, but it seems from like how things went with Phyllis that like, they weren't like the worst people in town, but I'll get into why we can't trust that narrative later. Um, but anyways, so Susanna knew Phyllis was sick. So she tasked her 18 year old daughter, Mary with nursing Phyllis back to health. Um, so this is already kind of abnormal. Mm. Like it would have been kind of like, okay, like here's, this young girl put her with the rest of them and then like they can take care of her. And if she lives, she lives, you know, or she just wouldn't have been purchased in the first place. Wow. So then things also get kind of funny because they give Phyllis her own room at the house, which was rare for any child, frankly, in the colonial era, let alone like a sick, young enslaved child. Um, and then she's there, she's getting better. And, uh, Susanna says, well, you know, she doesn't speak any English. She's a child. So like, you know, Mary, can you just like teach her some English, teach her some commands so she knows what I'm asking for, you know, when I ask for it? And she said, okay, sure. Um, and so Mary tutors Phyllis. But then they realize that she is picking it up very quickly. Ooh. And she's not only speaking it very quickly, but she keeps like reaching for the charcoal and writing like what look like letters. And they're like, Oh, can she write? Is she interested in writing? Because people didn't think this was possible for like a person of color to be able to be literate in any sense of the word. Right. And it's such an interesting age to start. Cause that's like the yeah. age when kids start kindergarten. Exactly. So they should pick it up quick. Their brains are like yeah. charged at that yes. age. To Absolutely. Learn. So instead of stopping her education, putting her to work, leaving it at just commands, Susanna decides to keep going. And she's like, you know what, Mary, let's see how much this little girl can learn. So within a few months, like within like, I think like a year or two, she is fully literate, reading, writing, and so much more. Um, now... One of the reasons people point towards, like, why did Susanna decide to invest this much energy into this young girl? And some historians believe that it wasn't just like a new morality boost or like a sudden realization, like black people were people. <laughs> um, they think that she was actually grieving. So nine years earlier, Susanna's youngest daughter died suddenly at the age of seven. And historians believe that when she saw Phyllis, there was just like something about her that reminded her of this lost child. So she took her in and treated her as her own. That's interesting because I was going to ask if she was barren in some way or had like been trying to conceive and couldn't because it seems very... Like, she is obviously in the slavery mindset. Yes. She's not, like, above the, you know, ethics of the time. Right, like Some right. families were. Yeah. But, but also, no. it seems like she's being very mothering. Yeah, she is. Like, I mean, Phyllis had her own room at the house right. that is so rare. And, like, 
she really like never did housework like Susanna from the get go was like, yeah, I'll, I'll put her to work eventually, but she never did. So people think that this might be the reason why, like, you know, again, we don't know for sure, mm-hmm. uh, but it makes sense. I mean, there was one time when Phyllis was a teenager and, uh, you know, she was visiting with family friends on her own. Like, again, not typical, like, behavior for this kind of situation. And she is visiting them. It starts to rain. And Susanna was like, oh, like, you know, Phyllis had a little bit of a cough earlier. So she told the coachman, she goes, go pick Phyllis up from her friends. She goes, I don't want her walking home, like, you know, in the rain. You know, she's going to get sick and catch a cold. And so the coachman goes, picks her up and, and Suzanne is looking out the window and she screams because the coachman wouldn't let Phyllis sit in the back in the coach. So she was outside in the rain. She was the outside <laughs> in the rain up front with him. And Susanna got out and she was like, what the fuck is the matter with you? She goes, I told you to pick her up so she wouldn't get wet. Like you <laughs> idiot. Like, but <laughs> I tell that story to, to kind of really explain like how much she was emotionally invested in this girl you know we'll kind of get into like the financial things a little bit later and some of the doubts of her (laughs) her kindness her kindness i don't know so but yeah there's a lot going on here (laughs) um and then some people also speculate that maybe this was all just one big experiment you know like they just like let's see if it's possible for you know a black person to be reading and writing right like, kind of like a fun lark that turned into something so much more <laughs> so i mean you imagine you'd have to be emotionally invested i'm sure yeah. a lot of both like enslaved people and slave owners at points became emotionally invested with each other yeah i'm sure i mean we're like all these people are human beings you know you're spending your lives living in the same dwelling uh, you know there's plenty of like I mean, what's it, what's it called? What does Belle have when she falls in love with the beast? What's that? Um, something syndrome. Oh, Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Yep. There is like that connection that you make and then I'm sure it can happen vice versa as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know, but, but anyways, so Phyllis is excelling in English, reading and writing, and she is learning to practice on a book that every colonial American had in their home, the Bible. (laughs) Um, So she grew to be a very, very devout Christian. Um, But lucky enough, Susanna was also a huge fan of poetry and the classics. So Phyllis is growing up not only learning English, but she mastered Greek and Latin as well. So she was able to read works like the Iliad and the Odyssey in their original language. Wow. She is incredibly smart. It's unbelievable. And now she's learning geography and history and mythology and astronomy. Like she is getting like more of an education than most white colonial girls at this time. It's incredible. Um, and apparently as much housework as she ever did was light dusting and serving tea to guests. That mm. was, which is the similar to like a, a white colonial yeah, girl. That yeah. would be like what a daughter would be tasked mm-hmm. with. You know, did she learn how to play any instruments? That would be interesting no, to me. I don't think so. Yeah. I didn't read anywhere that she did. Okay. That's a um, little too high class, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And again, the reason we can't exactly speak to the Wheatley's overall kindness was because Even though Phyllis was given a lot of liberties and a lot of privileges, she was not allowed to associate with the other enslaved people, which is a big red flag for me. Yeah. It's kind of like, then why can't they talk to each other? 
Like right. what's going on? Maybe here? she's like a she's seen as like a class above. I mean, she definitely is. Yeah, and like the, the way she's treated. Yeah, but but yeah, I don't know if they were like, oh, like we can't have her realize that she's being treated so well. I don't know, or we can't have the other enslaved people realize they're being treated right. so poorly, or she's being treated so well. This right. is very strange. very weird. Um, but there was one other like enslaved person that she was able to hang out with um she met him on a family trip to newport rhode island his name was ober tanner and i don't know anything about his story but he was another literate enslaved person Mm. which was very rare and i think that when they met they're like oh my god you are the only other person like me in the (laughs) world it seems like what's happening and they became really close friends and they wrote letters to each other for the rest of their lives. That's amazing. Which is really great because she never wrote about herself. So the only glimpses we get into like her personal life and her thoughts are through these letters between her and Ober, which are, which is really interesting. So I know that she's like first generation from Africa, but do we have any inkling of her skin tone? Because I know sometimes people with like a lighter skin tone were treated with a little bit more sympathy and allowed to be like front of house workers. We don't know for sure, but it seemed to me from the portraits, she was always painted very dark. Yeah. So I and don't it's know. like, it shouldn't matter, but I know that like to white colonial America, it really did matter. Right. Well, I, and I, I don't think that there was any, um, colorism in this okay. case like i don't think she was treated better because she had lighter skin interesting yeah because well, i thought the same thing yeah you know? it must just be because she was a child yeah like a very young child in mm-hmm. some random other circumstances right um but phyllis was writing more than letters when she was 12 years old she started writing poetry and of course the wheatleys were really encouraging and it made sure that she always had plenty of ink paper candles they, you know, if she was writing at night, they would light a fire for her so she could keep warm. And every morning at breakfast, they would listen to her recite her poems that she had written the night before, which is a feat for like most parents now, yeah. <laughs> you oh know, like God. when your kid comes down and is like, I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there was a young boy living in a cupboard under the stairs. Like somebody already wrote that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's the most famous story yeah. <laughs> of all time. Next to Shakespeare. Stop it. <laughs> so she's writing They're encouraging her. She's getting better. So the dad's down for this too. Yeah, so we'll find out later. He probably wasn't as much. You know, I don't think he actually really cared what was going on. Again, he's a dabbler. He's working all the time. Mm. This was really like Susanna's thing. She's like controlling the household while he's off doing his business things. Yes. Got it. Um, But in 1767, she has her first poem published in a Rhode Island newspaper when she is around 14 years old. It's called On Mistress Hussey and Coffin, and it was about the experience of two men who she had met who described a near shipwrecking during a storm like they were in Rhode Island. They came to hang out with the family. They tell this incredible story, and she is so inspired that she writes this gorgeous poem and gets it published. And the Wheatleys are really proud of her. And they tell everyone in New England about this prodigy. And she starts to pique people's interest. They want to meet her and see if it's true. Because it's so unbelievable to colonial white people at this time. Right. And she is the first published black American 
right? Yeah. I think that's like that. Yeah. I think that's what we end up always posting on our Instagram yes. mm-hmm. when like her birthday comes up or whatever, yeah, yeah, or like yeah. whenever <laughs> the the poem was published. Yeah, like, this is the first Black American to ever be published. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like or to have a book published. Like I think other mm-hmm. people have oh, had yes, like yes, little yes, things yes, yes. published, but right. she was the first to have a whole book published. Mm-hmm. Um, so. She writes this little poem. People are kind of starting to mumble about her. And then she gets really famous after she publishes a poem about the Reverend George Whitfield after he died. He was really famous for kind of starting the Great Awakening and I believe like the Methodist Church and all that. Um, Very famous person. But people read her poem about this influential man and they were like, yeah, like that's how I feel. And this particular poem becomes a really important part of her legacy and being able to like kind of reach people on an emotional level. And again, people making a connection that they didn't have before between like that black person has feelings like I do. Like, how is this possible? Mm. Like again, opening people's minds and their hearts on some level as much as they could be open at this time. Um, the poem also gets sent to England because um, George Whitfield was very known around there and specifically to a woman named Selena, the Countess of Huntington, who is again, so moved by this that she becomes quite a fan of Phyllis. And she's like, I'm going to remember that girl, which comes in later. So her name gets around and she gets to meet a lot of famous colonial people like John Hancock. She is invited to fancy dinners in her honor. Like she is living the life of like a regular, like of like an upper class colonial woman right now. It's incredible. Because like John Hancock, that whole crew is from Boston. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. there's a big crew of like important colonial people from Boston. Yeah. And she is meeting all of them. But it doesn't mean that people have forgotten totally who she is and the fact that she is not a free woman. So even if she was the guest of honor at a dinner, apparently she would often be sat alone at a small table. Some records say, oh, no, she asked to be sit at the small table. But I feel like that's some people trying to cover up some shitty behavior. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I like, agree. Yeah. I don't buy that 100%. Because, Who wants to sit by themselves and, like, have everybody look at you while you eat? That's so uncomfortable. Yeah. And also, to be clear, it's like she always sat with the Wheatleys. So, like, she hadn't been told to sit at other tables, mm-hmm. you know? So why would she suddenly ask for that? Right. I don't know. Did she get along with the Wheatley's other children? Yeah. Okay. Her and Mary were best friends. And then she was also um, close to their, they had twin children, uh, Mary and Edward Mm -hmm. and, um, or Nathaniel or something like that. But yeah, she was also, I think it was Nathaniel. They were also close. Um, But yeah, the whole family, like. She's just like part of the crew. Part of the crew. Friday night, movie night. Yep. With pizza at the Wheatley's. Yep. Um, So. I don't know about this whole table thing, but she's getting quite famous among colonial New Englanders. And now that she has people's ear, she does start to talk about the political unrest that's happening around her because she lives in the heart of Boston. There is, I mean, there's a lot changing. They're the rebel rousers for sure in Boston. Like, I feel like it would be like living in like DC (laughs) in the past couple of years. Like there is history being made like, out front of your steps like it's insane so she starts writing she writes a little thing about the stamp act she writes about the boston massacre um which was also brave for her because she was on the side of the patriots and the wheatleys were not 
they were loyalists to the king. Mm. Like they like knew him. <laughs> but yeah, they so this is one of the first times that she's kind of speaking her mind and thankfully like she was allowed to i don't know why but also like the first person shot in the boston massacre was a black man oh really yeah so it's like there's this like two-piece threatening mob and then who seems the most threatening Mm. right like it's still we still see it in america today but like the first person shot was a young black man oh my gosh i didn't know so it like totally changes the story when you're like oh that's why somebody freaked out and shot somebody yeah it's like ugh, gives you chills yeah um So she's writing about these kind of hot button topics. um, And then she takes it a step further and she does start to write about slavery. In 1770, she wrote a poem called On Being Brought from Africa to America. She says, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there is a God, that there is a savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew." Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. So this has become quite a divisive poem over the years. Um, Some people really hate it. They see it as kind of a betrayal, kind of like Stockholm Syndrome, like you were saying earlier, like how could she think that being stolen and enslaved be a merciful act the my pagan land part is really 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 hard hard and very like you know what happened to the native american people living Mm -hmm. in canada what happened you know to the people who have just been taken over by this religion in a weird way yeah but then it's like at the end she's like but remember you're christians and i'm a christian too so like these other black people in your home they could also be Christians. They're like, they're people like, don't forget. So it also like kind of makes me wonder is the beginning part like service to the people reading service to the people reading it saying like, all right, I'm not going to throw cold water on you. I'm going to warm the bathtub up. Right. Thank you for bringing me from my pagan land. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, I wonder if she's kind of warming up the water a little bit and be like, you can trust me. I'm a Christian just like you. Right. And people who are like me are also human beings. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about poetry, but maybe it's possible. And think about how alluring the old Testament is in terms of people being freed from slavery. Mm -hmm. Like if that's a book that you've been reading from the time you're a child, if you really focus on all the times that the Hebrew people had been freed from slavery because of God, yeah, you're going to cling to that. Yeah. It is funny because later on when she starts to get more vocal about slavery, she does do that. She goes, you all are just as bad as the Egyptians. I want you to know that. And I know you know what that means because we yeah. all read the same fucking Bible. Right. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, then she wrote another poem to the king of England with the line, you know, I'm adding the, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, so basically uh, a monarch's smile can set his subjects free, maybe reminding him that this could all be over if he wanted it to mm. kind of saying like this whole thing is only real because you're making it real. 
you know, which is a really bold thing to be saying. Um, and then in her most direct poem about slavery, like up until this point, um, called to the right, honorable William Earl of Dartmouth. She does a lot of poems as like open letters to people. I love which that. Which I also think is very bold. That's like what people do with blogging right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <Yeah>. early blogging. <laughs> exactly. And so these are public poems, but she's kind of calling people out and like writing to them directly. And she's like, I'm not even going to make this like, you know, <laughs> an elusive poem. She's like, I am writing directly to you this is the rotten tomatoes of yeah the <laughs> exactly i'm gonna rate your actions in government yeah <laughs> so she writes this poem and she's a little more pointed in this one she said i young in life by seeming cruel fate was snatched from africa's fancied happy seat and at the end of the stanza she says such such my case and can i then but pray others may never feel tyrannical sway so she's saying like this is tyranny. Like what you're doing to people and calling people who are now fighting for this new fancy freedom. Yeah. Tyrannical. Exactly. Is, that's Very a bold, bold, mm-hmm. bold move. Um, you know, and people say like, she's not being harsh enough, but really she's in again, a really precarious position because let's not forget. She is still an owned woman, even though she has, you know, none of the normal stamps of an enslaved person right now. She is someone's property. Like Papa Wheatley could like be editing her poems. Exactly. <laughs> we don't know. And, or he could be like, you know what? You're not getting any more pen and paper. Right. Like we're in, like, we're stopping this full force, but they never did. Um, and I also think that her being like polite about it is again, shining light on the fact that the colonial people the white colonials were being really hypocritical. She was like, you are actively (laughs) engaging with the slave trade while also hanging out with me at parties and buying my poems. Mm -hmm. She was like, how does this make any fucking sense? Like, and I think again, she's playing that politeness to her own advantage. Oh, for sure. For sure. Because she's not stupid. No, she is one of the smartest people in, in colonial America at this time. She has read every philosopher that she could get her hands on at this point in their own language. So there's no like flaw in translation either, which is amazing. It's incredible. Then, In 1773, Phyllis published an entire book of poetry, which is an incredible feat for anyone, let alone a 20-year-old female enslaved black woman. The book was titled Poems on Various Subjects, Religious Religious and Moral, by Phyllis Wheatley, Negro Servant to Mr. John Wheatley of Boston in New England. (laughs) Just in case you, that was the whole title. Just in case you forgot. If you didn't know who she was, <laughs> this is my producer. Exactly. <laughs> um, so this makes her the first African-American person to publish a book of poetry and only the second or maybe third woman in America to do so. Amazing. Like what? I didn't know that part that like, she was only like, I think like one source said second, one source said third. I mean, women but also weren't educated. No, they weren't. A she lot was of like given literate. an education. That's yeah. crazy to me. It's bananas. But I want to make it clear. This publishing was not easy. So now I'm going to go through some of the hoops she had to jump through. Okay. <laughs> so the first publisher in the colony said, well, you know, before we publish your book, you know, you have to get 300 people to basically 
promise to buy your book like pre-order it as much as like colonial times went like yeah they had you to, still have to do that yeah they had to subscribe and like that wasn't like i don't like from what i understand it wasn't just for her that was for everyone anyone trying to publish a book in <laughs> during this time and right prove to frankly, me you have do. fans like exactly. i'm not gonna print this out if nobody's gonna buy it it's expensive exactly so phyllis and Susanna had to basically go on a book tour to drum up some business so they go and they just start talking to people and spreading the word and being like are you interested in this book here's phyllis she's incredible like you should buy this book when it comes out so they are working their butts off but just not enough people said they would buy the book it was just really difficult so Susanna was like don't worry we have another option Let's send your manuscript to London and see if we can get it published there. So they find a publisher in London who's like, yeah, sure, I'll publish this. But it seems kind of crazy that an enslaved woman wrote these poems. He's like, I really don't believe I don't believe it. So I want proof that these poems were actually written by her because that's going to be the whole selling point of this book. Send her over. So... They didn't do that. <laughs> they held like a deposition in Boston and they held a meeting among all these prominent men in Boston and they interrogated her and quizzed her on the book to make sure that she actually wrote all of these poems. And then 18 of the most prominent men in Boston, including John Hancock, signed sworn affidavits that guaranteed... <laughs> That Phyllis was indeed an enslaved African woman and that she really did write these poems. Well, John Hancock just likes signing stuff. He loves to <laughs> sign things. He likes to sign things bigger than the title. On he the page. wasn't even there for the whole meeting. He just walked in <laughs> with his quill high in the air. And they're like, give me your John Hancock. And he, and he goes, ah. There were so many men that signed is, the Declaration. And this is before the Declaration of Independence. He was so practicing. He, was he, was practicing. practicing. he just loves it. Without Phyllis Wheatley, there'd be no John Hancock. Um, <laughs> bold statement bold uh, statement <laughs> i'm pretty sure he was like really wealthy no. i think he financed like all of the american <laughs> revolution like single-handedly he's so rich i think probably i think that's true somebody fact check me but i'm I pretty sure so. that they used him for his money <laughs> um so they get the they get it signed they send it back <laughs> which again this is something to keep in mind this is a really long, difficult trip back and forth across the ocean. So they are waiting months just to hear like, okay, yeah, maybe, but here's one more thing. Here's one more thing here. You know, it's just, it's so annoying. And then they tell her, well, you know, you have to have a famous person to kind of vouch for your book. She's like a famous, like, like, and they're like, but it has to be a person in England. Like it has to be something that like our readers will know. And she's like, what the hell? And then she is reminded that she has a fan in England, Selena, the Countess of Huntington. Wonderful. Good. Selena. Remembered Phyllis from that poem that she wrote about George Whitfield all those years ago. And she said, I would be delighted to put my name in association with this book. Good for Selena. I like Lots her. Of Me too. But it finally gets done. And since it's being published in London, and one of Susanna's sons happened to be going over there for business. You know, Susanna said, why don't you take Phyllis 
over there and why don't you let her go on an official book tour in london so she does she goes to london it's so exciting and it's going really well she is the guest of honor yet again at many dinner parties she meets benjamin franklin she's being escorted to museums and plays it is so exciting and we know that she's actually being treated well because she wrote to her old friend Ober Tanner and she's like, I am astonished at how well this is going and how nicely I am being treated. And I think it paints a better picture of how she was being back home because she said in London, I'm being treated as more of an equal than an oddity. And I think that that really like opens our eyes to what was really going on in the colonies. Like people are like, oh, that's cute. It's cute that you write. Like kind of like a like a monkey on a bicycle yeah. or something. Aww, like, oh, good that's for nice. You. Look at that. Like Fun. I didn't know you could do that, right. you know? And she was like, it's actually nice being over here because people aren't treating me like a circus animal. They're treating me like a like a person, like an like, intellectual equal. Yeah, exactly. So things are going well and actually one of the reasons that historians point to towards like this going really well um is that like the tides were really turning against slavery and it was at this point in english history legal for slaves um who were coming from the u.s to or i guess the colonies to emancipate themselves in london so she could have been like i'm a free woman i'm staying here if she wanted to right um and the only reason that this was the case at the time was because lord mansfield ruled on the famous Somerset case. And we know from a previous episode that one of the reasons that he did this was because he had uh, a really close relationship with his niece, Dido Elizabeth Bell, mm-hmm. who was the half black love child of his like brother or something. I can't remember yeah. what it was actually, <gasps> but you know, it, it was, was like, a family member, a close a family, family member. member. And like, this is like this little girl, encouraged him to change his mind which then the somerset case happened and you know like affected this story like it's just all coming together it's all crazy well in england and france like a lot of europe emancipated slavery long before the united states did long long before us so people were like putting pressure on us to like get rid of it and this is like years in the future this is a hundred years before that yeah yeah um so she's having a good time but after only six weeks in london Phyllis gets word that Susanna was gravely ill. Oh, so she's like her mom. I know. So she rushes back home. She misses the pub, the actual publication of her book, which is really sad, but even more sad. She missed a meeting that had been arranged between her and King George the third. She was supposed to meet him <laughs> and she had to skip the meeting. Crazy King George. I know <laughs> he was like, going nuts by this point oh yeah it would probably would have been a mad mad honestly Um, honestly honestly so while she is going back her book comes out as planned and it is getting rave reviews but the wheatleys are not people in england are reading this and they're like why is this girl still enslaved and they start writing reviews and they're like she is such a talent and the Wheatleys are extremely hypocritical people. Like how dare they profit off of this young girl's success and not free her? Like she, she's making money off of this book and it's not hers. Right. Like what the hell? <laughs> 
So yeah, so people are talking about the thing that frankly, like nobody was talking about. It's before. the pink elephant in the room. It is. And like as much as like, you know, Phyllis wasn't leading like the typical, you know, enslaved person life, um, you know, it was still a matter of principle. So the Wheatleys did emancipate Phyllis after the book release. She is now a free woman. Her life didn't change too much because, you know, this is obviously, you know, like she's still living with the Wheatley. She's she still, still hanging out. There. You know? It's not like yeah. she gets a cool, like, <laughs> flat in New York City. Exactly. She's, like, still there. But you can tell that it meant a lot to her from her writing. So she is now free to talk about her feelings on slavery, like, even more openly. And she has some writings printed in the new newspaper for everyone to see where she says, you know how you're sick of the tyranny in England? That's how enslaved people feel. It's an even worse tyranny. Like she is writing even more bold poetry about this. Um, and again, right before the colonial war, people are really hyped up about the whole idea of tyranny (laughs) especially in boston um yeah they're they're crazy up there so it's exciting she's truly free to speak her mind but a year later in 1774 Susanna wheatley dies and phyllis is devastated this is the woman who had changed her life and who had been her motivator and her cheerleader and kind of her marketing director kind of raised her really too yeah and you know there are some things that can be said like did she look at this girl as an oddity probably like did she profit off of this person that she owned yes so did macaulay calkins exactly so there are a lot of like sketchy things about the wheatleys and Susanna and what were her true motivations we'll never really know but all in all she changed this girl's life and gave the world, you know, the opportunity to meet Phyllis, mm. which is incredible, you know? So, but without her partner, it's all up to Phyllis to sell her books because it's like Susanna died and then the boat came in with 300 copies of the edition to sell in America. And she's like, oh shit, I have to sell all these books by myself now. Like, I don't have my, like, older white female companion to go along with me and like help me sell these books but she did it she sold every single one of these books just in time because right afterwards boston is really heating up because it's the boston tea party (laughs) and there is so much commotion in boston everything is going crazy john wheatley leaves boston phyllis moves in with mary and her family that was the daughter who had tutored her they were again really close and just as the revolutionary revolutionary war is starting in 1775 phyllis decides to write a poem to this guy who has just been picked to lead the Continental Army. She writes a poem to George Washington, encouraging him in the war because she is like, you are about to be like, she like knew she's like, you are about to be one of those famous people in the world, you know? And she says, proceed great chief with virtue on thy side, thy every action, let the goddess guide, which is why I chose that that this name for the cocktail because I love that she says goddess. I think that's really cool. And it's just, it's a really big deal because she is obviously writing 
an ode to also a very well-known slave owner. It's not like she didn't know that he owned slaves when he, you know, wrote when she wrote the poem. So she knew this and she's still encouraging him in this war against an army that I didn't know this, but was apparently offering enslaved people freedom if they fought for England. They're like, you know, you could come to England and be free. Oh, yeah. So if you fight for us, we'll do this. That's how we got a lot of Native Americans. The English got a lot of Native Americans to Mm -hmm. fight for them. It's like, if we win, we'll give you your land back. Exactly. So this is another like kind of contentious poem that she wrote because it's like, you're kind of fighting it like, like she's very into patriotism, very into freedom, but they're like, you're actually kind of writing to the person who's going to keep your people enslaved for longer, probably Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. um, but she writes the letter. She's like, no, this is going to be the best thing in the long term. Again, she's thinking way ahead. Um, but he's really busy at this time. So it took him a while to answer her letter. Cause she didn't publish this one. She sent it to him personally. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he wrote back to her. He was really kind. He apologized for the delay. He praised her poem saying that she was such an excellent writer. And he goes, and if you're ever in Concord, come for a visit. <laughs> and some people think that this actually happened. Some people think that she went and visited him and they hung out together and they spoke. Others say there's no evidence for that. So we really don't know if it actually happened, but the invitation was definitely extended. He's kind of a busy guy. He's very busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have to talk about what happens next. So George Washington loves this poem and he wants to see it published. He thinks it will boost morale and maybe give people a little more confidence in him. So he sends it to a friend of his and he's like, I mean, I couldn't publish this. You know, people might think I'm vain. I can't publish this. I just won't do it. But, you know, you could. I want you to read it. And if you <laughs> decide that it's just too good to pass up and you feel like you must publish it, you know, or else you will die, then I understand and I won't be mad. It's like, babe, I've got these three pictures. Yeah. Can you post one of them on your Facebook exactly. and talk about how much you love it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after a lot of winking, the poem does get published and people love it. They really do feel inspired and they feel patriotic and they have hope in George and faith in George Washington, like even more so than they did before. Like they're like, yes, I am in. It's like their eye of the tiger. So, (laughs) (laughs) but people are really clasping on to one thing in particular about this poem. It's this goddess character who is guiding general Washington and the Patriots. This is the goddess Columbia. So I'm going to read a little portion of this poem. One century scarce performed its destined round when Gallic powers Columbia's fury found. And so may you, whoever dares disgrace the land of freedom's heaven defended race. Fixed are the eyes of nations on the scales for in their hopes, Columbia's arm prevails and on Britannia droops the pensive head while round increase the rising hills of dead. Ah, cruel blindness to Columbia's state. Lament thy thirst of boundless power too late. So vomiting all over the microphone. <laughs> so, because of the fame of this poem and what it did to encourage patriotism, Columbia became synonymous with the United States of America and a symbol 
of a woman with her arms stretched out, clad in robes, became the symbol for America, which is why we have the District of Columbia and why we have the Statue of Liberty. She is Columbia. It's incredible. Yeah. (laughs) So... Now, she didn't invent the goddess of Columbia. I want to make that clear. That happened like 30 years earlier. Um, But she did popularize the image. So more fame for Phyllis. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) But a few years later, when she's 25, John Wheatley dies. Phyllis is not even mentioned in the will. So rude. This is what makes me feel like he was like, he was against it. I like, I don't, I just don't think he liked it. Like, I think he was like, okay, like I'll, he was like catering to my wife's needs or whatever. Um, and then Mary Wheatley dies. So for the first time in a long time, Phyllis is really alone. She's familyless. Yeah. Again, like she's like, I came on a boat familyless and then I got one and now I'm alone again. And they were her patrons. Like, a lot of her career was like funded by this very wealthy family and now they're all gone. She doesn't have a support system anymore. She was living with them. She doesn't have a home. So she starts to have a really difficult time. They are in the middle of a war. There's a lot of inflation. Jobs are hard to come by. She was also never taught how to do domestic work. So she can't even make money being a hired servant because she doesn't know how to do it. And if people can't afford bread, they aren't exactly buying poems, which was how she was making some sort of living before. She was like, yeah, like I'm being kind of supported by this family, but I'm also making my own money. Right. But the war is strapping people down. Exactly. So she accepts a marriage proposal from a man named John Peters. John Peters was a free black man who owned a grocery store, um, but apparently he also was a lawyer. Um, I don't know how you became a lawyer back then. Like, I think the history checks were saying like a lot of people were just like, I know things. I'm just going to say I'm a lawyer. Yeah, I'll go to court. Um, And I say this because it's really interesting is apparently he was a lawyer who defended black citizens in court because nobody else would. Wow. Which I think is pretty cool. Um, And I want to say that because there was a book that came out about Phyllis Wheatley, I think in like the eighties or something. And the author has been kind of like debunked on a lot of her shit, you know, Mm. and she talks about John Peters as this like lazy guy who was like not good and like a horrible person using her. But like, you know, she always she uses the term lazy, which I don't think that he was, you know, I think that he was a free black man trying to make a living in colonial America during the Revolutionary War, which is really fucking hard. Like near impossible. Yeah. So I don't know. I like to kind of reject the theory that he was like some lazy asshole. I don't think that that was it. I right. think they were in an impossible position. Um, but we know that they lived in a house together in Boston. She's pregnant. She has her first child um, and he dies at only a week old. So... Phyllis is like, okay, I'm going to get back to writing. And she is really trying to get a second book of poetry published, but is having no luck. I mean, she doesn't have this family to kind of vouch for her anymore. So people are like, hold on, why are we listening to you? Right. You know, like, what's the point of view? Right, exactly. And it's also kind of like, I think, again, in America, it was more of a novelty thing. It's like, 
oh no but you already did that right. what else do you have you know we already have a book we already have a book published by a sla- like an enslaved woman right why do we need another one mm-hmm. you know and like even after benjamin franklin signed on to like Help be out. A, help help out with this book. Like he was like, yeah, I'm going to vouch for this book. She's a really good writer. People still weren't interested in publishing it. Mm. And again, she didn't have those family connections over to England anymore. So she, you know, and obviously we're at war with them. So it's just everything is kind of set up for this to kind of blow up right now. It's really unfortunate. So she can't get it published. This is really disappointing. She, you know is mourning the loss of her first child. Her health starts to fail her. John's businesses aren't doing great for all the reasons we said before. So they're like, all right, we're going to move to a smaller area north of Boston, try and help the situation. But after some time and after the war finally ended, Phyllis does have a second child, a baby girl. And she's like, okay, I have a baby now. I need to make some money. Mm. And, you know, her husband's businesses were still not taking off. It's really difficult. So one of Susanna Wheatley's nieces is like, Hey, I have a school. Why don't you come teach at the school? You know, I'll, you know, your, you and your baby can live here for free. Like, you know, it's basically, she's not getting paid, right. but she has a place she's to stay. Boarding. And it takes some of the pressure off of her husband because he is like, okay, great. If you guys are safe, I can, just focus on like getting a business off the ground, supporting myself. And then we can all be back together soon. Mm. That was like the goal. the goal. But after a few months of teaching, her second child dies and it's very upsetting. And I think now that she doesn't have the baby, she goes back to John, she gets pregnant again. And then John is thrown into debtor's prison. Oh, which you can never get out of my no. God. And it, she is now homeless and pregnant, has no money. Because, again, she was just working for, like, a room and board before, so she has no money saved up. And they, she just has nowhere to go. And on December 5th, 1784, Phyllis Wheatley and her third child died during childbirth. Mm. She was 31 years old. Oh, so young. I know. I mean, she like, it's just so sad. Like she dies in this like horrible boarding house, like all alone. It's really upsetting. And since at this point she is just a poor black woman, there was no pomp and circumstance to her funeral. There wasn't even a headstone. So the grave of the great Phyllis Wheatley is forever lost. But her legacy lives on, mainly due to abolitionists who, like, hu- like a couple hundred years later, or maybe just a hundred. Yeah, we're in the 70s. Hundred yeah. years later, they found her published work and they used it as evidence that black Americans were not inferior to white Americans. Like, they were smart and intelligent and they could write poetry and they could get shit published. And even though those hoops that she had to jump through to get her book published were bullshit, the fact that John Hancock, a founding father, signed a legally binding document saying that Phyllis Wheatley was a professional poet and an enslaved black woman meant that no one could deny that this was true and no one could write it off as like, 
no, that didn't happen. Right. They just made that story up. Yeah. And it like did a lot for the abolition cause for to point to this person and be like, she existed and she mattered. This is just incredible. And she has also just been a source of inspiration and strength for black writers and poets for years. And she has schools and buildings named after her finally. And <laughs> it's just incredible. And if you ever end up in Boston, there's a beautiful monument. We're there in the heart of the city of the heart of the American Revolution <laughs> stands a monument to three women who changed Boston's history and American history. It's Abigail Adams, Lucy Stone, and Phyllis Wheatley. And that's her story. That's so wonderful. I hope I told it, told I it okay. I think that's beautiful. That was a great story. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I get kind of like back and forth and I try to explain something and then no, I go back perfect. and I kind of turned around. Me and Caroline and Eliza have a picture in front of that statue. I, I each like acting yeah. as one of the women. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's Phyllis Wheatley. Very cool person. What a great story. It's so fun to hear because she is just such a blurb in like, you know, fun lists where it's like, yeah. oh, by the way, there was also this woman who published something, but she was a slave and now yeah. it's done. Mm-hmm. And it's like to know like the actual here and my God, how much this connects is insane. I can't believe it. Like, because I also switched who I was doing this week. <gasps> Me too. <laughs> I was doing someone That's else. So weird. And I was like, it's too much the week after Christmas and like coming up to New Year's. I need yeah. to like do somebody else. But That's perfect. That's crazy. Let's get some All more right. drinks. We'll be right back. Okay. We are back. We're back. Part two. <laughs> and as Kind of, I thought we'd have a nice, tall, tall green drink, drink, drink. <laughs> with a big apple in it. Of course, I mean it's just on the nose. It really is. Uh, it's got that nice patina. That's <laughs> Casey's favorite thing to say. Like when we're walking the green around, patina. I love when copper turns green. <laughs> and every time I say it, Casey goes, "You mean the patina." <laughs> like okay fuck you that word is definitely typed (laughs) in my notes i don't know if i'm gonna say it we'll see maybe i'll let you say it all right well what is this drink it looks incredible okay so it's called huddled masses oh and it's kind of a tom collins okay but i changed things around a little bit so it's um an ounce and a half of gin three-fourths an ounce of lemon juice a half an ounce of simple syrup tom collins usually uses soda water so i topped it with tonic water instead and then i added uh, a half an ounce of absinthe to give it that like green color i wanted it to be just a little green not super green but just a little green and then obviously i put a wedge of apple on the top because as we know uh, the Lady Liberty stands in <laughs> New York Harbor. Love it. Um, facing southeast to welcome Cheers. all the ships. Cheers. Mm. Mm. It's like an absinthe Tom Collins. It really <laughs> Honestly, is. Honestly, that's all it is. Well, and that's the whole thing with absinthe is that I love it, but it's so hard to do right because yeah. like it's a really overpowering flavor and I feel like it's just enough yeah. in this and it's really refreshing. I love it. (laughs) 
Uh, it's delightful. And our statue comes from France. I feel like absinthe was big in France. It is. Yes. <laughs> I, oh, like, <laughs> that's why I put absinthe in my cocktail last week yeah. because it's very French. <laughs> I is. love that. So tell me what you know oh. about the Statue of Liberty. Okay. I know that she is from France. She was a gift. I know that she was copper. <laughs> Now she has a nice patina. <laughs> um, nice I know. Green patina. <laughs> I know that she's on her own island, which I didn't know as a kid. I thought she was just like on the coast. I know there's like a visitor center there. You can go up in the crown. Um, she's got some nice sandals. Uh, <laughs> and she does. That's really like all. I don't know much about her creation or why France gave us a gift. <laughs> I don't know if it was a wanted gift. Uh, I don't know. It's I kinda imagine like, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like the car you get on Christmas, but you're like, now I have to pay for this. I know. <laughs> you know that that was what the term or uh, the term white elephant comes from. No. So uh, white elephants were like a really rare type of elephant. I think in like Malaysia or something. And so Malaysian Kings would give people they didn't like like foreign dignitaries the gift of a white elephant because there were all these rules so they were really hard and expensive (laughs) to take care of and it was kind of like a fuck you because people didn't know that it was a real curse to get gifted a white elephant (laughs) well the statue of liberty is definitely a white elephant it's turned out okay it's turned out okay also i don't know if it was malaysia or not that's like the country that's sticking out my head might have been thailand or singapore or something else but like (laughs) southeastern asia yes (sighs) okay so our story begins in 1865. So almost a hundred years okay. after your story, there's this French man, Edouard de Leboulet, <laughs> and he's at a dinner party uh, at like his house, which I think is pretty close to Versailles. So he's like a kind of a rich guy in France. He is super siced that the slaves are about to get emancipated in the United States. So what was that word? Siced. What is siced? Just excited. You mean psyched? <laughs> no, I'm excited. Oh, okay, <laughs> maybe I've I made it up. Never heard that <laughs> I word know. before. Me and say that a lot. Really? Yeah. Weird. Okay. I don't know. I'll change it. He's super stoked <laughs> that. He's also psyched. <laughs> no, it's stoked. I'm not using psyched. I refuse now. What? Okay. <laughs> that the slaves in the U.S. are about to be emancipated. He's like, yes, this is. I'm very excited about this. And wouldn't it be nice? He's like drunk at a dinner party. <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if like somebody gave a gift to America? You know, like when a dog does something good and you give him a treat. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, what if we were like, good job, America? No. So he was an ardent supporter of American freedom. And it had been almost a hundred years since the declaration of independence. And he was the president of the French anti-slavery society. And he's just like a prominent political thinker at the time. Now there's this other guy at the party. Who's a like-minded sculptor named Frederic Auguste Bartholdi, but I'm just going to call him Fred. Cause there we have we to go. use his name a lot. Freddie okay. boy. He is also there and equally moved by the progress in America. And he's like, this drunk conversation sounds great to me. So uh, Le Boulet is like, okay, 
if a monument should rise in the United States as a memorial to anti-slavery, it should absolutely be from the French because, like, we helped them win the war, you know, the original war, and, like, they didn't come and help us. And, like, I think it should be this, like, joint thing of, like, remember how much we helped you, (laughs) and now you also have freedom. Hashtag never forget. Right, blah, blah, blah. This discussion gets traced to many different times, but apparently it's also a big, like, between these guys, a big middle finger to France because Napoleon III is, like, currently in charge of France, so they're not really free right now, but knew that they had been free and that they wanted to be free. So this is, like, that middle section where France is definitely kind of struggling. So... Fred gets home and the next day actually starts planning the statue. So, you know, when you're at a party and you're like, we should meet up and like, we should totally go to Spain together. That would be excellent. I'm buying the tickets right now. And then you wake up the next day and you're like, I'm I'm never going to, I'm never speaking to that person ever again. No, I'm not going to Spain with that person. I'm not even going to friend them on Facebook. Like (laughs) I don't even care about who they are. Well, Freddie boy is like planning out the statue. He gets home and he's like, no, I'm absolutely going to do this. (laughs) And his concept would soon be known as, and this is her proper title, Liberty Enlightening the World, who we call the Statue of Liberty or Lady Liberty when Uh we're referring specifically to her. So now... Fred is kind of doing all these other projects and trying to get all these other art installations accepted to places. So he had pitched this idea to Egypt. He pitched an idea where at the forefront of the Suez Canal, you put this lighthouse called Carrying the Light to Asia. And it's a female in robes carrying a torch. And... It's not unprecedented because the Colossus of Rhodes was like the very famous statue in Greece where the big Colossus was a hundred foot tall copper statue. It's the sun god. People had done it before. Right. But he proposes this to Egypt and they're like, that's way too expensive. Like, if you give us this statue, like, we still have to raise money to put it up. And we just don't have that kind of money. So, no, we don't want your statue. So now he's like, America, Hello. <laughs> do you want my statue? <laughs> um, so the Franco-Prussian War is going on, which we talked about last time. That's the one where Napoleon's trying to go into Russia, Prussia, and trying to conquer the world. Doesn't work out great for him. Uh-huh. But a lot of Fred's designs and stuff are getting destroyed because Napoleon had kind of taken over his hometown. Right. So he doesn't have all the stuff he had before. So he's like, you know what? This would be a great time to like skedaddle, get out of France, Mm -hmm. comes to the United States and he's arriving in the New York Harbor and he sees this little island called Bedloe's Island. And he's like, that, that would be excellent because no matter how forward the United States gets, no matter how good we get at building buildings, my statue will never be surrounded by skyscrapers unable to see. And if you've ever been in New York City, you know, like, you can't get a picture of the Empire State Building because it's surrounded by other tall, tall buildings. Yeah. Like, it's near impossible. Same is true of the Chrysler Tower. And, like, if you're surrounded by other big buildings, you can't see it. So he's like, if I get this island, everybody will always be able to see this statue that I'm pitching forever. So he's really excited about that island. And... The island's kind of interesting because for um, a long time, 
there was a native people who used that island for food and it's 14 to 15 acres and super close to the shoreline so you could come across on like a small boat plant crops and go back over and then after the native americans were pushed out the dutch settlers used it for food but then in the early 1800s the u.s military took it as a way to fight in the new york harbor so Mm -hmm. they built a fort on it okay Fred's super excited about this because that means that the island is owned by the federal government, not by New York. So now if he also builds on it, this is not just a statue for New York. It's for all of America. Oh, perfect. So he's like, this is great. Federal government owns it. So he's like, everybody, okay, let's build this. So he goes and like talks to famous people in New York, gets a meeting with Ulysses S. Grant, current president, Uh and is like, okay. I think we should build a statue. And he's like, I'm sure that could be done. I'm sure we can get that. Because uh-huh. Grant just like, he like fell up into success. <laughs> he <was> like, <laughs> I know nothing of him. So I have Grant no idea. Like, Lincoln's dead. What do we do? <laughs> I was just the general of he's the He's the other War. drunk guy at the party. Uh, yeah. He was like at this drunk party. Like, yeah, let's build a statue, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'll be president. <laughs> He had like a beer pong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's doing keg stands. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant, a true ah. American hero. Ah. So he's like, okay, let's do this. But Fred is like, okay, everybody likes my idea, but I'm not going to com- campaign for it just yet. I'm going to like let it sit and stew. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go back to France. He goes home, makes like a whole bunch of little models of Lady Liberty. And while he's making models, he's like, I have to decide how to personify the United States as a woman. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? And as Katie mentioned in her story, there is already a woman named Columbia who's kind of an embodiment of the American, like, foot forward with her arms open wide, accepting Mm -hmm. to people. She's been shown in a couple different ways. Sometimes she's, like, this white woman with blonde hair with, like, her arms open. And then sometimes she kind of looks more Native American. Mm -hmm. And there's actually one uh, carving in the U.S. Capitol where it says something about, like, you know, the goddess Columbia, and it is a white woman and, like, a Native American princess, like, next to each other. Hmm. And it's still, like, in the Capitol building, but it's women used for that. And then your poem also mentioned Britannia, which is the British version of this. Now, she usually looks more like Boudicca, where she's got, like, a like a staff staff and like a crown. She looks like a warrior. And then France has a woman like this as well called like Morena. Oh, um, Marianne. Yeah. Marianne. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. she, she, it looks somewhere in between the two. She's like not quite a warrior, but not quite not. And then they have their lady Liberty. Who's like topless, like on top of that mob of people who's like running into like battle. So there's a lot of women used for this. And then we also have that famous in America, westward expansion picture where it's like the woman floating over top the United States. And it's like manifest destiny. Oh yeah. So, and Lady we love, Justice. You know what? I'm going to say it too. It's we like love I, it. I feel like they're like, oh, we love a woman in charge. And it's like, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. You just want a woman leading it because that may They you look can prettier blame, in pictures. <laughs> also, you can blame her if Manifest Destiny doesn't work out for right. you. And Lady Justice too, like with her blindfold and she's holding the scale. Like, yeah. 
a lot of these big concepts or ideas are focused around women. So mm-hmm. he's working with all of that. And a lot of female statues are sometimes Egyptian because of their robes. They're sometimes Christian and focus around the Virgin Mary. So he's pulling all of this together. And he decides he's going to go with this Roman goddess named Libertas, which is the goddess of freedom Mm -hmm. in Rome, and take pieces from all these other, like, liberty goddesses. She was widely worshipped in ancient Rome, especially among emancipated slaves. So at this point, the liberty figure that he's using kind of already adorns U.S. coins. It's... um, Like, there's one on top of the Capitol building already. Like, people are using her everywhere. The statue's design was meant to invoke thoughts of peace, and the torch was supposed to be progress. And also, if you look at her feet, she's slightly walking forward, Mm -hmm. and she's stepping over a broken chain. He initially, she's chained down, and initially he wanted her holding this broken chain because it was the emancipation of slavery is how he got inspired to do it. But he was like, that... I think the American people, specifically the South, would hate. So you can't, if you're standing on the ground, you can't see that her feet are walking over a broken chain. Yeah, I didn't know that. From above, you can see it. Huh. So that's fun. Um, He also originally wanted her to be wearing this triangle cap, which was something given to emancipated slaves, but... A lot of people who are still, like, pro-slavery are working in the government, and they're like, absolutely not. That would give abolitionists the wrong idea. We don't want to do that. So why don't you give her a helmet? And he's like, yeah, but I don't want war to be evoked by this. Yeah. So he decides on the diadem with seven spikes that are symbols of the seven seas and the seven continents. So oh. that's why there are seven. I love that. Um. So... She's wearing a gown, a cloak. She looks like a Roman goddess. Apparently, the face is modeled after his mother's face. Interesting. Um, and the body after his mistress. <laughs> so hate that. But you can't really what? see her body. No, I was going to like say, I've, I've literally never thought about like no. her figure because she's in this very like dense robe correct and he made her with this crown and this arm and this tablet a very strong silhouette and that was a a point that he wanted to make like if you're looking at a skyline even if she's completely blacked out you know what the silhouette is like what you're looking at yeah which we do Mm -hmm. obviously oh absolutely and this scale was incredible at the time of her building if it went to plan she would be the tallest building in new york and would end up being the tallest monument ever built. Whoa. Beating the Washington Monument. Now I think she's like the third tallest. There's one higher in the tallest in the world now is in India. It's called Unity. Um, and it's like 500 and some feet. And Whoa. she's 300 and some feet. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one in the middle. Oh, it's a Buddhist um, temple. It's okay. a statue of Buddha. But like she's so much bigger than the jesus statue in brazil and that's, that's a shocking massive, yeah it is shocking. i would totally think that because and it's funny because when you said that i was like no the jesus i literally thought the jesus statue mm. has to be bigger yeah but it's just because it's on a mountain yeah <laughs> it's like on top of a mountain in brazil or whatever yeah rio de janeiro but she would have been at this time the tallest monument ever built so um 
Initially, he was unsure of what to put in her left hand, but he did really admire the United States for their freedom, which was almost 100 years earlier. So he gives her a tablet with the date of the Declaration of Independence. Ah. So in Roman numerals, it says July 4th, 1776 on it. Then he decides that he wanted to shape copper around a skeletal structure and make this copper only 0.094 inches thick. Her skin is less than two pennies thick. What? Yeah. That's crazy. I can't believe it's still standing. I can't believe it didn't blow away. Uh, It should have. What? Multiple times it shouldn't have. Because it's... And also, this seems like a lot of effort to be putting into another country. Like, what is he doing? He's, like, obsessed with us. He really is. We found out that most of this copper came from Norway. We did some testing on it. So, like, over 200,000 pounds of the copper for the statues from Norway. So, I don't know how he gets a hold of that. I've also, going to be honest, never thought about where copper comes from. I've always thought pennies. I hope. (laughs) I was like, yeah, they probably just melted a bunch of pennies and, like, made the Statue of Liberty. They melted all the faces of Abe Lincoln on the pennies, even though he's not on the pennies yet. <laughs> so were pennies they were a thing they just all had most of our coins had lady liberty on them or like a woman really yeah, or like an eagle you know they didn't have like people when did they start having people do you know i don't um let's see i think uh fdr is on the dime no i think that's teddy roosevelt right is on the dime no a- teddy roosevelt's not on a coin maybe yeah you're right he's on the mount rush jefferson's on the nickel yeah yeah and fdr's, and FDR's on the, on, you're on right dime. so like he's the most recent yeah i mean that was only 70 years ago so like they had to start printing them with presidents fairly recently i don't know the date a coinographer tell us when when did they start putting men on god coins? i should have paid more attention to that goddamn coin <laughs> podcast i had to listen to for <laughs> no you're listening to Susan B. Anthony one. <laughs> there's no B. women on money except for her and sacagawea so and queen elizabeth ii's on everybody's money okay so this is going to be a long time remember he got this idea in the 1860s and his goal was to have it done by the centennial of the u.s which is the 1870s okay this will not happen yeah um it's been about 10 years and he realizes all i'm gonna get done is like the arm by this point (laughs) so he finishes the arm and then paints a picture of the rest of the statue and just sends it to America <laughs> for the 100-year celebration. So literally for a decade, Madison Square Park just had her arm <laughs> sticking out of the ground. That is like <laughs> sending someone like, I'm going to send you all the ingredients to bake a cake, right. but then you only get the eggs. Right. And you're like, I, I can't do the rest I of this. I can't bake the rest <laughs> of the cake. You put a picture of the cake them. next to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Mary Berry cookbook and one ingredient. This is unbelievable. <laughs> Good luck. So now Fred takes his second trip to America to fundraise and he meets with the American committee. One of whom at that point on the committee is the 19 year old Theodore Roosevelt. So now he's 19 19 and on this committee, like statue, statue. Now he is, she have boobs. (laughs) That is him. That's (laughs) him at the drug party. That's why his daughter's so crazy. Because I got bees, everybody. (laughs) They're like, we're not in New Orleans. What are you? Stop. This is New York. (laughs) It's cold here. Classy here. Put on a coat. God, where's your pea coat? (laughs) Now he, 
Fred's really ready to peddle for some money. So he goes around looking for grants. He is asking, how can I get a hold of Bedloe Island? He is like talking to people. He gets President Grant to like before he left office to sign a thing that's like, yes, I approved of this. Now the next president has to approve of it. Then he's like, okay. Everybody in America is set to fundraise. I'm just going to go back to France and like let it happen. So <laughs> he goes back to France and finishes the statue's head and just displays the head in Paris. <laughs> so the arm is being displayed in New York and the head is being displayed in Paris. Typical, you know, <laughs> men only wanting women for their body parts. <laughs> Distressing. For their arms and head. <laughs> what every man's after. <laughs> so, um, finally, he's like, well, I better finish the rest of this. It's like, America is depending on me. And they're like, we never really asked for this. Um, <laughs> never. We didn't. This is, I don't, I didn't want I just am imagining him the beating himself the up by it. And he, and America's like, dude, it's fine. Everything's I, okay. It took us three decades to build the Washington Monument, and it's a stick. <laughs> like, calm down. <laughs> calm down. So he's like, well, this is a really big statue, so, like, I might need some help. So he calls up a buddy. <laughs> His name is Gustav Eiffel, which, of course. <gasps> oh, my God. He's going to be really famous for something else he built in Paris. He's like, okay, Mr. Eiffel, uh, I'm trying to build this huge statue. And he's like, the problem is you're trying to make it rigid. You can't. You have to make, like, a stick in the middle, and her body has to be able to move. Like, yeah. With the wind and shit, because this is in the New York Harbor, and it's only, like, an eighth of an inch thick, right. you psycho. I like that nobody thought to just make it thicker. <laughs> No, we don't have the no, money no, no, for no. that. <laughs> they don't have the money for that. There's not enough pennies in the world to make that statue yet. <laughs> so Eiffel's like, you have to make it so it like flows in the wind. And he starts to help him make it. And this is actually the first ever curtain wall structure, meaning that the outside of the statue is actually not grounded to anything. Just the inside is grounded. And what? the outside is like hanging on Does the on outside it. move? With the wind, like slightly. It's not like while you're inside, you're <laughs> not like, whoa! <laughs> but it moves. Statue of Liberty was the first wacky inflatable arm person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Waving that torch around. That. She's the drunk person at the party who's she just really like, is. like, you know, grabs a tiki torch, like, just waving it around. Fire, <laughs> lady like, Liberty. Oh my gosh, LL, cool it. <laughs> Columbia. <laughs> I oh, can't name. <laughs> believe you didn't love that LL Cool J joke. I loved it. I did. <laughs> I did. I, I mean, I flew I over it. Expected a bigger response. I'm really anxious about this story. <laughs> okay. Because I'm not letting you tell it. No, no, because it's literally not about women at all. <laughs> it's just about these dudes. That's perfect. Okay. So also, I feels like I have this other great idea. Why don't you put it together in France, put her together in France, and then take it apart and ship it to America. And he's like, oh, I never thought of like a practice run. So he puts it together in France. And in order to like not piss off America, he has the U.S. ambassador come over and like do the first rivet. Like, this is still your statue. We're just putting it together real quick. Oh. So in 1882, the statue is finally completed like 20 years after this drunken party where they started talking <laughs> about it. I think Leboulet is dead also at this ah. point. Like he doesn't ever see this statue completed because he's also probably super embarrassed of Fred actually making this happen. So... 
he completes oh it's not even completely done it's done up to her waist and he invites reporters to come have lunch inside of it to make more money <laughs> to build the rest of it I'm not going to lie. That would be a really cool fucking lunch to go <laughs> to. Cool story. That's a really cool story. Um, I would also love, I wonder if any of them exist, like the little mock-up figurines he did of her as like different variations. That would be fun. Like, I wonder if they exist and we like should, someone like, have has all collected the them. That'd be so cool. Yes. So um, finally, almost 20 years after the dinner party, La- Lady Liberty fully paid for broken down and put into crates she's in 350 pieces 214 crates on a ship going to america thank god it didn't sink jesus christ that would have been tragic (laughs) (laughs) worse than the titanic (laughs) i mean honestly no deaths lots of metal in the ocean (laughs) but the u.s had been going through the panic of 1873 and the depression made it really hard for them to get funding for the pedestal not to mention the people in America weren't sure that he was like still making the statue. They're like, it's been a while. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. So also in terms of funding, he had to raise like $200,000 for his half, but their pedestal is like almost the same height as the statue and is made of pure granite. So like they have to raise in America $300,000. The pedestal? Is so expensive. It's is huge. almost the same height. It's huge. Wait till you look at a picture of it. It's I, like uh, massive in I, scale. Uh, yeah, I am. I feel like when you're telling this story, I feel like I've never seen <laughs> this statue fucking statue. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Statue of Liberty? It's I green. know I've never been. It's green. It's Somebody green. take me, Miss Krista. <laughs> take me to the Statue of Liberty. You need tickets like a year in advance. Really? Yeah, you better get online now what? if you ever want to go. Oh my god, It's absurd. Okay. So everybody's doing like lotteries and public fees and auctions and like benefit events to try and get this statue built and then pulitzer in new york is pulitzer is finally like okay anybody who donates i'm gonna print your name and how much you donate in the paper in new york and money starts flowing in and if you're in the paper you're the king of new york you are everybody knows that that <laughs> that's the one Everybody thing you knows know that. that's it um so some of the entries included 60 cents a young girl alone in the world oh wow one dollar and i'm sorry cents. is that me circa <laughs> 1999 it was sitting in my lovely comfortable home with my family <laughs> alone in this world <laughs> every i was so girl. dramatic who wasn't as a teenager that's true <laughs> me and abigail williams <laughs> <laughs> you're a witch <laughs> okay no i just like my chemical romance <laughs> one dollar and 35 cents a kindergarten class I that's love cute that one dollar a lonely and very aged woman <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say very Asian? Aged. Oh. <laughs> I thought what is this? Very Asian woman. Who is that? I love that. How are you very Asian? So you said aged. Aged. Like old. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's Indira Gandhi. She's like, I'm very Asian. Who else? Empress Wu. I'm very Asian. (laughs) Who's actually in New York? Um, 
anime wong <laughs> not now no. i don't think i don't right? know what year things happen probably oh yeah i guess she was just like being born maybe maybe she yeah. was starting like the 20s right yeah <laughs> <laughs> but then the here's the here's the kicker 15 dollars. <gasps> that's a lot of money residents of a home for alcoholics oh they really wanted this statue God. it's great <laughs> they're like we're so sober we need something to <laughs> take our to mind off this, this woman with a crown <laughs> okay so the ships arrive. All the crates are there. Like 200,000 people come up to the coast to like just look at the ship, even though the pedestal's not there. And then they realize that like there's no way to build scaffolding to make this. So there's guys hanging from ropes, like getting the copper on because there's no scaffolding to do this. <laughs> Finally, October 1886, when the country is 110 years old. There's a parade in New York to dedicate the statue. President Cleveland, like, leads the parade. Then there's a nautical parade from the shore. <laughs> like a boat parade? Yeah, to I the statue. That. We need um, to bring those back. I think you leave, if you're in New York, I think you leave from Battery Park to get there. If you're in Jersey, the who fuck knows? knows what the name of the coast is. It's Hoboken? Like, yeah. who knows? <laughs> Isn't that a place? Like, right across? Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Sorry, New Jersey. From, I don't know anything about it. At least from Sopranos Pier. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The East, South New York Pier. <laughs> Carmela Coast. <laughs> okay. So, this parade's happening, and there's speeches being given at her feet. A French flag is draped over her face oh. that is supposed to be dropped at the end of the speeches. Like, here's our gift <clears throat> to you, America. But, like, somebody's giving a speech, and there's a long pause, and the person that's supposed to be <laughs> <laughs> and it comes down early. Daddy's so drunk. Everybody's drunk in this story. <laughs> it comes down early. Besides the alcoholics And then anonymous. they're like, uh, I'm supposed <laughs> to keep telling my speech. And then there's, like, three more people that have to go, but <laughs> <laughs> after all that after all that oh i love that very few members of the public are allowed to be there for this ceremony and only two women were allowed on the island and they were like the wives of dignitaries because what they said is they feared that women might get injured in the crush of people now this pisses off the suffragettes they charter a boat <laughs> as close to the island as they can i feel like we've talked about this in a previous episode but i can't remember which one and they make speeches about women's rights to liberty in front of literally lady liberty while men are on this island giving speeches about this statue i love the hypocrisy and the irony of this it is so ironic and then an african-american newspaper suggests that they should not light the torch until people in the country are free quote in reality. Yeah. And then Great Britain is publishing how funny it is that France, a country with no freedom because of Napoleon, <laughs> is giving a <laughs> country with very restricted freedom a statue about freedom. And Great Britain's like, we have a monarch and all of our people are chill. Like, calm down. Oh, I love all the finger pointing from like, <laughs> woo, woo, woo. It's like the three Spider-Man meme. Yes! <laughs> yes! Pointing at each other. It's oh <laughs> 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 great. And all the people are like, we are not having a good time. <laughs> like just, every regular person in each country. Is they're like, like, can we please stop? They're like the people hanging from the ropes, like putting yeah. the rivets in the damn statue. <laughs> the torch actually though, when they did light it up, um, it's more like a glow worm. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It wasn't super bright, which is kind of a problem. But 
in terms of fundraising and ideas of freedom, probably the most important person connected with the statue, I think, is Emma Lazarus, who wrote the new Colossus as a poem, which is printed in the newspaper, raised a lot of money, and then put on a plaque on the side of Lady Liberty. Emma was born in New York City to a family, in eight, a Jewish family, in 1849. She was a poet, a prose writer, and a translator. She was an activist for Jewish causes, specifically after she travels to Europe and learns of the extreme anti-Semitism that's happening in Russia and surrounding countries, and that existed really all over the world. The lines from her poem, The New Colossus, are referenced in nearly everything that goes along with Lady Liberty. She said that for her, this statue was a way to express her empathy for refugees and now is uniquely identified with the Statue of Liberty in American culture because it's seen as a way to welcome immigrants to America because it's right next to Ellis Island. Yeah. So her poem says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Hmm. And that is her poem, uh, which is what America was meant to do. (laughs) But we don't always um, or nearly never do that for people who are in need. Um, From this, it is... Wait, let me make sure. Okay. Okay. From all of this, we know that Lady Liberty has kind of been given the idea of being the mother of exiles. Mm -hmm. She is like, I'm here. I'm ready for you. Similar to Colombia with her open arms, especially because of the rush of immigration in the 19th and 20th century in the United States. She very quickly became a landmark that everybody wanted to see. It took only a few years for her copper to turn the green patina. (laughs) (laughs) That we know today because of the oxidation of the copper. It started in 1900, was mentioned in the press in 1902, and she was entirely green by 1906. Then Congress approved a ton of money to make sure her structure was good and to paint her. But the people freaked (gasps) out. Everybody was like, no, don't. Because this green softened her outside and made the statue even more beautiful. So... What Congress did was like, okay, that's fine. We'll leave her green. We're just going to like paint the inside and we'll First use time ever the people of America don't spend money. money. <laughs> but they do spend the money, but they do it to like add an elevator inside oh, so that perfect. you can get people who can't walk the like 300 some odd stairs up to her crown. Um, one thing we always kept changing was the torch. Um, it was not meant to be a light. Fred wanted it to just be solid copper to reflect sunlight during the day. But then people kind of overruled that and made some portholes near the bottom. But Mm -hmm. the light wasn't super bright because of that. Then six years later, they had more portholes, then some yellow glass to it. Eventually, it just all gets replaced with like a glass topper. Uh But um, Ralph Pulitzer, one of the grandsons of original Pulitzer, ends up getting like things drilled into the bottom. So light shines up on the whole Island. So you can like see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He funded to run electricity under the water to this Island. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty intense. It is intense. But on July 30th, Lady Liberty would see her first war in mm. world war one. 
She was used on recruitment posters, on Liberty Bonds, and she served as a reminder that, hey, France, you're in trouble. We helped you last time. You helped us, and we should help again, trying to get people involved. German spies set off an explosion on a peninsula in New Jersey that was really close to Lady Liberty, and she suffered severe damages (gasps) in her torch-bearing arm and needed $2 million (gasps) of repairs. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yeah. After being so important in that war, in 1924, she was declared a national monument, but her struggles were not over. She had seen a great deal of pain, including in 1929, during the Great Depression, a man climbed out of the windows in her crown and took his own life (gasps) by jumping from her crown. Oh, my God. Franklin D. Roosevelt, then in combating the Depression with the New Deal, transferred the statue to the National Park Service so that they could make general improvements because the New Deal was all about getting people who had been fired jobs. So it's like the National Park Service. Now you're in charge of the Statue of Liberty. And at this time, they added, um, I think you weren't allowed to go into the torch anymore, like only the crown. Yeah. You're, nobody can go in the torch anymore because yeah. there used to be stairs up and like a walkway around there. During World War II, she did remain open for visitors, but she was never lit up at night due to fear of bombing. So they would black out the city. <sighs> she was lit, lit briefly on December 31st for the New Year's celebration, but wasn't completely lit again until D-Day when she blinked in Morse code the word victory. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so... Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, there are, like, certain moments where, yeah. like, my nose starts to twinkle mm-hmm. with, like, crying, mm-hmm. and, like, that is one of them. It's like, really that sweet. is really <clears throat> cool. It is. Then... In 1956, the island was finally renamed Liberty Island, and they also put a museum of immigration on the nearby Ellis Island. She was easily, by the 1960s, the most recognizable American structure. More than the White House, more than the Washington Monument, more than Uncle Sam. So over and over again, Lady Liberty is used to make a point about American hypocrisy. In 1970, a woman named Ivy led a demonstration at the statue where she and other members of NOW draped an enormous banner over the railing which read, Women of the World Unite. Mm. In December of 1971, 15 anti-Vietnam War veterans took over and occupied the statue for days, flying a U.S. flag upside down from her crown. It's also been taken over briefly by, and not limited to, but by the Puerto Rican independence group, by opposition to abortion groups, by U.S. intervention in Granada groups. It is used for the gay pride parade. It's used for the captive Baltic nations rallies. So anytime you're trying to talk about injustice in this place that we know as America, you go to Lady Liberty because she's isolated on an island and you can prove your point there because it means yeah. something. Well, it kind of goes back to what you, say, what you were saying before about how like there's nothing obstructing your view from her. No, you, you can know, see it. Everybody sees it and it's such a symbol And I do kind of feel like it's this perfect opportunity to be like, this woman is supposed to stand for all of us. So I'm going to take the island over and tell you who exactly she is not standing for right now, which is really interesting. It is interesting. And people keep coming back and doing this over and over. I listed a couple. There's like, oh, I'm sure. So many. 
1986, Lady Liberty turned 100 years old, and a huge study was done to see if she's doing okay <laughs> and to make sure that she's not going to fall apart. Um, and it turns out they found out that the torch arm was not put on completely square, and it was super unstable. So Ronald, Ronald Reagan is like, okay, we absolutely have to fix this. But to fix this, they have to erect the world's largest freestanding scaffold of all time. And they start to, like, blast the paint on the inside to make sure her structure's okay, only to find out that they had used asbestos <laughs> to, to paint the inside. So now they're like, oh, shit, no. we have to pause this restoration, make sure all of our people have, like, hazmat suits so that none of our workers are getting sick. Yeah. So they fix that, but it turns out the arm is can't be replaced. So they take down her arm and craft a new one with a new torch that goes back to the original torch that they were going to make. Okay. Her original arm is in a museum in New York, I think on the island, actually. And now her new arm is holding a torch covered in 24 karat gold oh, <laughs> to reflect whoa. the sunlight better. <laughs> so she has gotten an upgrade. <laughs> um, but Lady Liberty's pain was not over. In the early morning of September 11th, 2001, she watched as terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers on Manhattan and smoke billowed into the sky. She was immediately and permanently, at that point, closed to the public because she was a symbol of America and they were really worried that somebody was going to come after yeah. her and there is no escape from that very small island if you're yeah. on it. The island remained closed until the end of 20, uh, 2001. Um, you could go on the island at that point, but not in the pedestal and not in the statue. They finally reopened the pedestal in 2004, but the statue was closed until 2009. Oh, my gosh. When Barack Obama um, and several other members of the government decided that we could reopen the statue safely and that a limited number of people would be allowed in the crown each day. And that's why you need tickets like a year out. Okay. If you're going to go, yeah. there's only a few people allowed because if there is an emergency, which there's been a lot lately, they want to be able to evacuate quickly. Yeah. Um, she didn't only see damage from people and wars, though. She also saw some natural disasters. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy damaged both Liberty Island and Ellis Island. Uh, and for a long time, they didn't reopen. And then she has been struck by lightning 600 times. 600 times? Oh, my God. She is also the subject of conspiracy theories because all of the men that helped of build course. her were Masons. So <laughs> they think that she is a secret Illuminati symbol of a mass group planning to take control of the entire world. Um, no proof of that. Okay, well then do it already. Jesus Christ. Please, like somebody, what? somebody come take over her. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. Please, dear God. <sighs> Most recently, she was closed due to the shutdowns because of oh. the COVID-19 pandemic. She has been recently reopened, but again... People have been struck. Some people wait their whole lives to go to this statue, and it's been closed so many times recently that the yeah. waiting list is very, very long. Yeah. My best suggestion is just take the Staten Island Ferry across and look at her. Yeah. <laughs> That's completely free. There's no money involved. You yeah. just get on it, go back, and then go the other way. Perfect. Anyway, 
Hundreds of replicas of the statue are displayed worldwide. In fact, we gifted France with a smaller version of her, which stands in the city of Paris. You can really? Look, you can look at the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty ah! at the same time. That's so cool. It is cool. Uh, I've seen one in the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. I've seen one in Las Vegas, and that's just two that I have seen other than the one in New York. She's on stamps and coins. She is currently, her torch is on the back of the $10 bill. She is on the New York license plate. She is on multiple jerseys for New York sports teams and New Jersey sports teams. Uh, her head is famously sticking out of the sand in Planet of the Apes. Also, her body is sticking out of the snow in the movie The Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> She's like the end scene in like the original X-Men movie. Like they're yeah. all inside of the like head portion of the yeah. Statue of Liberty. She's used to bring honor to the United States, but also to show its Hippocratic nature on so many events. She's used for Halloween costumes. And if you go to Battery Park you'll see hundreds of little tourists, little baby tourists with a little foam ah. crown running around. <laughs> and it's really cute. She's easily one of the most famous and recognizable symbols in the world and is now 135 years old and still standing to watch the progress of our world around her. Oh, I love that. That's Lady <laughs> Liberty. Isn't that such a, like, that interesting. That was so great. I also can't believe you didn't mention when David Copperfield made her disappear. Don't care. <laughs> care for fake prestige <laughs> there's so much listen she's been through so much and i also think that that's why she is like the ultimate symbol it's like i like the planet of the eight things is so true because it's yeah. like when someone wants to picture some something devastating to america i feel like she's the first <laughs> Yeah, like victim almost. Yeah, it's like, like a like, dystopian future where it's yeah. like, oh, the Statue of Liberty is not standing anymore. That's a problem. That's when you know that things have gotten fucked. Right. <laughs> when like the Statue of Liberty is like messed up. Because you know? it's also like, where can you see an obelisk? Oh, everywhere. everywhere. So it's like if you want to like, if you're trying to center people's mind on like, where are we? Yeah. And what's happening? Yeah. If you have like her crown or torch sticking out of the ground, you're like, oh, I see. I see where we are. Perfect. So that's the story of Lady Liberty. <laughs> I loved it. Um, and now I think we need to get into a little, a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Um, but before we start the Just the Two of Us, we just got a wonderful message. <gasps> From who? Um, so Melanie Page is the first to message us about the extra Lady Romeo book. So Katie and I are going to write a note and sign it and send it to you. <gasps> From last episode. Yay! <laughs> it just came out today, so good job listening to the episode day of. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've been getting a lot of nice messages recently. It's been so wonderful. Lots of just, stories. So fun. Yeah, Thank you, Melanie. Yeah, we're sending you a book. Yay! Oh, perfect. <gasps> okay. So now... We need to talk oh, about these talk ladies. About we these ladies? Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I, it's <laughs> we unbelievable. <could>, Allie, we <laughs> actually could not have planned this better if we had tried. And this is the, we usually don't try a whole lot. And this is the most untried. This is complete happenstance. <laughs> I mean, we were changing our episodes midweek this week, both of us. Okay. So, I mean, we have to talk about, first and foremost, that one is an actual memorial to anti-slavery which i didn't know that that was where she had her roots and then we have a person who was even a hundred years before the emancipation of slaves like talking about anti-slavery i think that that is 
insane. I think it's insane. And I think it's incredible in the fact that like both of them are this cross Atlantic. I mean, it's called the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. it's this, these countries in Europe that are like by a hundred years from, um, Phyllis's life mm-hmm. are like, we don't agree with this anymore. And we're happy you're finally catching on. Yeah. But originally had been part of this trade to get her over here. Oh, absolutely. It's an amazing like chain of events. When you look at just, uh, it was, that's 200 years of history. Well, and if we're talking about, <laughs> frankly, the main theme of this episode, which seems to be hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, it, I circled it. <laughs> you know, we have so much hypocrisy going on here. And I do think that a lot of it is rooted in, I mean, it all starts with this European kind of hypocrisy that then we adopted you know, let's call like, it Anglo-Saxon. Ang- Ooh, I like that. You know what Anglo-Saxon I mean? Anglo-Saxon hypocrisy. Not necessarily the whole con- yes. Anglo-Saxon Christian, like rooted or even monotheistic religion yes. hypocrisy. Yeah, but it's so present in every leg of this journey. It's unbelievable. I mean, I don't know. I just, it's almost too on the nose to even put it into words. It is. I I love that she even like she is talking about slavery in her poems in such an impassioned way. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh yeah, like that makes sense when you write it down, or oh yeah, it makes sense that you're you are smart when I meet you. Right. Which is the same as like putting the Statue of Liberty up and being like, oh yeah, America, freedom. But like, but not actually, for you. Yeah, actually, freedom or just like kind of freedom. Yeah. Well, and I I wrote down that we're talking also at the root of this about poems that people actively ignore, <laughs> and Phyllis Wheatley wrote multiple poems about anti-slavery and about Mm -hmm. tyranny Mm -hmm. and calling out this hypocrisy that we were talking about, you know, and people are like, yeah, you're really good at writing poems, but we're not actually going to listen to you. Right. And then we have Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty saying this thing that people don't, they like to ignore it, you know? And it's like, well, yeah, like, you know, we get what you're saying, Phyllis. Yeah. Like, tyranny but like not for all of you like you know yeah. it's like no like slaves love this <laughs> it's like she's like no they don't and it's like yeah freedom for americans but not like you know anybody else who anybody needs else. no refugees like, no no like, refugees like ugh, you know and it's like you are actively ignoring what these people are saying what right. and specifically poems which i thought was cool that both of our drinks were named after a poem a poem which i thought was really cool and also like it's it's weird because i think you have like this slave owner in your story and then what i would say like the prototype of the hypocritical american citizen where it's like if you just work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps you'll be successful here yeah but here's all the red tape <laughs> here's all the red tape that yeah. makes it impossible for you to publish your book and for you to come into this country or for you to be successful here yeah. or for you to own a business it's like actually i think 
the difference between freedom and liberty is very interesting. Oh, yeah. Because freedom is something that technically, yes, under the Constitution, you're free. But do we all have the same level of liberation? Absolutely not. No, definitely not. And you can see the different levels of liberation just in how Phyllis spoke. You know, like her poems pre and post emancipation are like different. Like we didn't get into it like too much just because like I'm not like a poetry expert. And, you know, I was also going off of like things that people were saying about Mm -hmm, her. mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's like I think people, I think you're right, conflate freedom and liberty. And I don't think that, um, yeah, I don't think that Phyllis had either for a very long time. And she is trying to give a voice to people who don't have either at all, you know? Mm. And she's like, okay, so like I have a little bit of like, we'll call it like liberty. Like, you know, I have a little bit of freedom to do Mm -hmm. this. You know, I'm not a free person. Um, but she had to play it so carefully. And it's interesting that I think she gets a lot of criticism for that when it's like you're criticizing her and you're a person who never once experienced like what someone in her position was actually like the pressure she was under. Like, I think she knew exactly what she was doing. Um, well, while you were talking, I was thinking a lot about colonial America and like how, you know, in the declaration of independence with this statue was supposed to be built on the hundred year anniversary of like TJ pretty much explains freedom as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's like an addition problem. Yeah. And not everybody has all three things like for Phyllis, her life is not hers. Mm -mm. So she might've had the liberty to publish these poems but she doesn't own her own life. So is she ever actually free? It's very interesting. I don't know. I don't know what it means. It's interesting too, that you mentioned TJ because I didn't know where to put this in the story, but he actively wrote disparaging remarks about Phyllis. Mm. And he basically kind of like shit talk her in the press and was like, "Mm," like, you know, like she's not actually like, you know, this isn't actually good. Like, you know, yeah, maybe a slave can like write a poem, but they can't write like morality or whatever. I think some of that also is some of his guilt with the Hemings. Oh, absolutely. He he knows what he's holding back in his household. Like his, like for all we know, monogamous mistress for multiple decades and four children. Yeah. Well, and I think this gets to another point about both of these women is that ultimately, because of who they are and what they stand for, their stories are predominantly about other people. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we don't know a lot about Phyllis's own personal life because maybe she didn't have the actual freedom to like write journals. Maybe they burned her journals to keep whatever was happening secret. I really don't know. But like, we tell her story kind of like through these famous people. Like we mentioned John Hancock's name like a thousand times, you know, and with Lady Liberty, it's like we are talking about all the people who built her and campaigned for her and did all this and all the things that happened to her. I mean, obviously she's like a fictional person. She's not actually a really human being, but <laughs> but it, it's a similar thing. It's, I don't know. I think um, the models of these women, we talked about all three, right? Columbia, Britannia, and then what's the French one? Marianne. Yeah. 
And I, I this week was actually watching the Today Show, and Diana Spencer's brother was on, um, and he was touring us through Diana's like teenage home, mm-hmm. and he had a picture of Britannia on the wall, yeah. and was like explaining the portrait, and it's like a modern day version of like what she would look like today. So she's mm-hmm. kind of like punk rock or whatever, which is very cool actually, amongst all these famous oh, art yeah. pieces. But it was like okay we have all these images of women that are supposed to mean something Mm -hmm. and they're supposed to be symbols for our countries. But then when you have an actual woman that's doing it, there's people who are saying, Oh, she can't actually, or we need all these men to sign for her. Mm -hmm. It's like all the men are willing to use a woman as a symbol, but then Mm -hmm. when a woman does it, they're not willing to accept that it is actually the case. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I also think it's interesting that like we talk about names a lot in this podcast Mm. And the Statue of Liberty doesn't exactly have, like, a name. No. Like, I guess we could say Columbia. We say La- Lady Liberty, you know, whatever. But, like, she doesn't really have, like, one name. Mm-hmm. And Phyllis Wheatley's name is not her own, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the ship, the, the slave ship that took her and the family that bought her. Like, I think there's something deeply affecting about these women who stand for, you know, liberty and freedom and free thought and all these things that they don't even have really their own name, which right. is really upsetting. And it's, I think uh, kind of shines a light on the hypocrisy of America yet again. <laughs> it does. And it shines a light on, I think, um, the small scale hypocrisy versus yeah. the large scale, like in the Wheatley home there was personal hypocrisy. People Mm -hmm. were like utilizing her, taking her money. She was not free. And then the actual country is doing the same thing with the Statue of Liberty. It like is hypocritical to have a statue with this plaque that says, we welcome you with open arms and then be like, but actually we don't. Exactly. Yeah. Like we were actually turning away Jewish people during World War II. Like, oh my God. Come now. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's people needed help. And we were like, no. Yeah. And I mean, it's still happening. So, yeah. Mm. Very upsetting. Yeah. So, all right. On that well, positive note, <laughs> are you ready to toast yeah, yeah, to yeah, these yeah. women? <laughs> Who would you like to toast this evening? I want to toast ideas that are not fully recognized, but are fully present. Mm, and I think okay. that it is a good idea. I think there's a lot of very misguided men and women that have good ideas. Like, yeah. I think when. TJ wrote Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness and Equality. I think he had a good idea. I just think he wasn't ready to fully realize it. And that's no justification to him because fuck that. But I think that those ideas are what we're working on realizing now. So I'm glad people had them at some point. Well, cheers. Cheers. Um, I am going to toast people who change the world's perspective, you know, Phyllis Wheatley personally touched so many people's lives and changed their preconceived notion that people from Africa could, were literally unable to read and write Mm -hmm. and become literate. And they were, unable to learn and to make something of themselves when it's like no you just immediately enslaved them and didn't give them the option Mm. and I think that that's one of the things I really got from Phyllis's story is how 
even if she only informed one person that their preconceived notion was wrong, like that's a huge step, especially Mm. for that time. So yeah, to people who change um, other people's perspective and the world's, I think it's incredible. Cheers. Cheers to Phyllis. All right. Now, what is something you are enjoying in pop culture this week? Me and the kids watched um, Encanto last night. <gasps> is it good? It's it looks really so good. good. It's really sweet. Uh, I really liked it. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the music, of course, so that makes it great. Mm-hmm. But then also it is set in Colombia, which is like really nice. And there's like a lot of like Spanish line, like people speaking Spanish and like Hispanic ideas and it was just really, really lovely and a cute family story mm-hmm. um, about maybe not always fitting in together, but being able to say you're sorry and come back together. Oh. So, like, it's a really nice, good feeling movie with great music. I love that. <laughs> so, to, to Encanto, go Yay. ahead and watch it. It was a lot of fun. Oh, that sounds great. What do you have? Okay, so I'm going to recommend a book. Okay. This book is called By Yourself, The Fucking Lilies by Tara Schuster. And uh, it's one of those books. I love a self-help book, (laughs) but I don't usually finish them. Right. Because they beat the same horn over and over. They beat the same horse. And it's also most self-help books are written from the perspective of women who were like, I had a corporate job and then I quit my job and went and lived on an island in the middle of the Caribbean. You mean <laughs> like, eat, pray, love. And now I'm a <laughs> freelance writer. And Tara Schuster's not that. And she doesn't, re- like, I like that she, in her book, she talks about her own, like, self-help journey and how she, like, created these rituals that, like, helped her fix her life. And really, like, None of it has to do with her job. And the stuff that does have to do with her job is like stuff that could apply to anyone. Like she's like, I work in corporate media broadcasting. She's like, you know, which is like kind of encouraging. Like she's like, I work in cable television. Like it's not my job. It's me. Like I needed to fix me. Mm -hmm. And I loved her book. It was, it really has helped me a lot recently and I was, it's just like, it's been really incredible. And like, I think the, the New York times review said it best. It's like, you're going to want Tara Schuster to be your new best friend. Ah, fun. And like, even the parts that like, you know, like at the end of the book, she talks about like relationships and then it's like, you know, like that was the thing that was like, I was like, that doesn't have anything to do with me. So I was like, I don't need to read that. And it's like, let's just read it mm. and see if we can glean something from it, you know, right. and I still could. So yeah, it was a really great book and it's written half self-help book, half memoir. Fun. So everything she was saying was like attached to personal stories, which made me feel like it was real, mm. which I really enjoyed. And she's had a really wild life and I really felt for her, which then made me feel for myself. <laughs> Good, good. So, buy yourself the fucking lilies. It's so great, and and uh, yeah, and it has really. Um, I think it's been really helping me recently. That's really cute. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you can self help your stuff to to self help yourself to writing a review on <laughs> have a podcast about you us. Can. You 
can do whatever. But we would love it if you did that, really. Type yourself um, the fucking review. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. Um, find us everywhere. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're at all sorts of places. You can email us at hearstfromtherocks at gmail.com. We have a patron. We have a patron page. If you like what we're doing and you want to buy us a cocktail every once in a while... We'll take it. Let me tell you, we spend too much money on this show. Apple brandy <laughs> is so expensive. Is expensive. And Miss Krista <laughs> is spending a lot of money as well. Yep. <laughs> One day we will make it to New York and buy her a drink. Yeah. Um, and it will be great. But if you want to join, a year out, we'll plan to go yes. to the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> exactly. We'll buy our tickets now. Um, but yeah. So if you want to join us on Patreon patreon please do it's so fun you get a little bonus snippets every once in a while you get some stickers it's just a good time and it's a good way to support the show um but really most of all we want you to never forget that well-behaved women clean the inside and outside of their windows oh god yeah they do i've I've never never once never Never once once. no i just look out dirty windows i love it and they never make history (laughs) (laughs) goodbye Listening to her story on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.